Welcome to the Curiosity Key Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Wyman, and I'm a B2B marketing strategist, LinkedIn specialist, and curious thinking advocate. So what is curious thinking? Well, I believe that when you approach your business and your marketing by being a little bit more curious about what's going on around you, you'll enjoy what you're doing, engage more with others around you, learn more, and be able to grow faster. It's not about asking more questions either. It's about asking the right questions that will unlock all the potential opportunities around you. And this podcast aims to help you learn from other curious thinkers out there about how you could grow your business, get your idea off the ground, pioneer change and more. This week's guest is Steve Pipe. He's an absolutely incredible human being and huge advocate for using business as a force for good. Steve originally grew his business from a spare bedroom at home to over 40 people and then sold it when he reached his 50th birthday. He's got a whopping 500 recommendations on LinkedIn and after 20 years of researching and discovering what works, he is literally giving away all of his intellectual property in order to help create a world full of giving. Now, there are loads of key takeaways from this podcast, lots and lots of things that you can use to actively grow your business and use your business as a force for good. So if you're listening on the go, don't panic about having to take notes as I've summarized key points from this interview, which are available on the show notes on my website. That's charliewyman.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. So welcome to this episode of the Curiosity Key podcast, where I'm joined with Steve Pipe. Steve, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. Well, I met Steve, uh, um, I think it was last February, wasn't it? Or something like that as well. It was at the the B1G1 Impact World Tour with uh, Masami and Paul. Um, And yeah. Then we've met numerous, uh, numerous times since. Yeah, it's been a pleasure on every occasion. (laughs) <laughs> which um, I'm waffling and just to give a bit of context as to why I'm waffling a little bit nervous recording this uh, podcast interview because I've had a couple of months off um, to have a baby and just to try and figure everything else out and one of the questions that I did want to start um, by asking you Steve was that you started your first business um, essentially two weeks after having your first child because you told me that you quit your job um, yeah. and started a business in your spare room yeah. so can you tell us a little bit more about that? And if you have any tips on running a business with a small child, feel free to share those as you go along. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, the, the small child in question is now 28 years old. So I'm a 58-year-old chartered accountant, just to give you some context. Back then, I, wa- I had just been recruited a few months before to be the head of finance for a $150 million division of Kodak based in, in Hemel Hempstead. They've gone bust since, but I promise you that wasn't anything to do with me. Um <laughs> And I'd been there for a few months, and we, we were, Carol was obviously pregnant all of that time, and Laura was born in April uh, 1991. And straight away, you, I mean, you know that the first child comes into your life and everything changes in your head, but not perhaps just in your head, but in your heart and, uh, and elsewhere. I Two weeks after she was born, I, I nudged my wife in the middle of the night, and she, and she was a breastfeeding uh, young mum, Carol, you know, desperate to get some sleep and I'm waking her up and I said it's okay if I hand in my notice tomorrow isn't it it's one of those <laughs> yes tags at the end of the question she could not really answer any way other than yes and anyway she wanted to get back to sleep so the following morning I went in and handed in my notice only to discover 
that I had a one-week notice period. So seven days later, I left Kodak. I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. I just knew that the most important thing for me at that point was to put my family first. And in fact, that's a message which has really followed me through and driven my entire career before then and certainly since then in the 28 years that followed. You know, put your family first and everything else will fall into place. Secondly, do what you love. Now, at that point, I didn't know what I loved other than, you know, my young family. Um, but I've subsequently discovered, you know, through the 28 intervening years that when you focus on doing work that you absolutely love, work that makes a difference, then it doesn't feel like work. And there's a joy in your heart and a smile on your face and a spring in your step every time you go and do that thing called work and isn't it's never a it's never a hardship. So so I handed in my notice and uh, a week later I had my leaving due. I'd only been there a little while, so there weren't that many people at my leaving due. But the joyful thing was when I got back home, there was Carol and there was Laura, our little at that point, you know, ten day old, fourteen uh, day old baby. She is now a twenty eight year old. GP. In fact, in February, she's a fully, fully, fully qualified GP after 10 years at medical school. It's extraordinary you know, how time flies and how that stuff happens in between. Now, I started, so I handed in my notice. I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. I just knew that I didn't want to work 50, 60 hours a week for Big Yellow and, try, and, and be commuting to get there and so on. And I wanted to do something which was going to fit around you know, the fact that I want to put my family first. So I ended up working from home. I started a tiny accountancy firm. I'm an accountant by background. I started this tiny accountancy firm at home. Now, put that in context, we only had a two-bedroom house. That's all we could afford. Um, and so we were sleeping in one bedroom. The second bedroom was Laura's. You know, It was the nursery. But I started my accounting bedroom, but a business in the nursery. We had a bookcase, uh, much smaller than the one behind me. And I took out one set of books and put in a little piece of wood that's no bigger than the computer screen that I'm talking, that I'm looking at as we speak to you. And I hinged it so that during the day I could flap it down. And I had this, I don't know, 18 inch by 18 inch work surface onto which I had a tiny laptop. And I started winning clients from a shared nursery with a baby. I would mostly go out and meet them either at their offices or in hotels or coffee shops. And I positioned that as, you know, the great thing is you never even have to come to my office. I'll come to you. The fact that I didn't have an office was conveniently uh, just not mentioned in that in, as part of that sales pitch. And I, I, I grew the accounting business, you know, pretty quickly. Crazy work-life balance at that point because I was pricing too little. And there was my second massive learning point that if you don't charge enough, you get stuck in that, you know, yes, you win clients, customers, you win sales. But you don't earn enough money from those sales to be able to, to, to get by on a 30 or 40 hour week. And you have to put in a 50 or 60 hour one, especially if you're selling time as I was back then. Um, you're answering all my questions for me. <laughs> uh, we can drill down in more detail in any of those things. But, you know, it was it was the first baby that changed my life completely, both because I'm then a dad and we've subsequently had twins, Johnny and Katie. So we now have three fantastic kids. The twins are 25. And in fact, yesterday, Katie was now I'm a proud dad syndrome. I'm, I'm going to tell you this. Katie was <laughs> as does employee of the year uh, within the fresh category, which is out of thousands of, of people. She works at their head office. Um, lots um, lots of proud dad moments. So lots, lots, lots and lots and lots of proud dad moments. But actually, I think there's a, there's a message in there. Because I work from home, because I was able to be there every time 
the kids came back from school and they were excitedly showing us their homework or their bit of art or their little, you know, the, something, tell us a story about what had happened during the day. They didn't have to wait until daddy got home at 7.30 having travelled home from the city. Daddy was already, you know, upstairs in, by this point we'd moved to a slightly bigger house, you know, in, in a dedicated office up, upstairs. So I was able to be there as part of their growing up in a way that I might not have been. I was able to go to most sports days and and help them and read always be there to read a bedtime story and you know early evening baths and you know they, they've grown up into lovely wonderful human beings and I think you know having a being able to work from home was one of the reasons that that that's been possible so I I, I have ever since then I mean I built a business subsequently that employed 40 people that turned over you know five or six million at its peak I still never had a key to the front door um, because I and I never had a desk in the office. I've always worked from whichever home we're living in. We've lived here for 17 years, so I'm talking to you from home, from my study at home. And you know, in all that time, I have always, always, always worked from home. It's not without its challenges working from home, but the pluses so far outweigh the the negatives. You know, my commute is from upstairs. To downstairs. <laughs> yeah, come downstairs. It's, it's joyful. But I think there's a really key message there, um, which a lot of people do neglect. And I know that I did uh, many years ago, which is to really understand what's important to you in your life, in business, in your career, um, and just make sure that you're always coming back to those, you know, sort of real key values and the key things that are important to you. Because at the end of the day, we've only got one life, you know, we can't do it again. We can't go back and change things. Um, So we have to really make the most out of what we've got. And I think you've articulated that brilliantly in that, you know, you only had, um, you had to share an office with your newborn you know you had to leverage what you had and you had to make the most out of it in order to grow your business um so you did you mentioned that you didn't really know what it is that you were passionate about at the time you didn't know what it was that you wanted to do so what made you set up an accountancy business and continue doing that to the point where you grew it to 40 people you know sort of five six million turnover yeah well it that's interesting I mean I I I go back just a couple of steps. I studied economics at university and I would have become a professional economist were it not for the fact that I was getting married up here in North Yorkshire, in, in Yorkshire. We were getting married in Wakefield, actually. And there are no jobs for economists in Wakefield. So really, and what was more important to me then was getting married than pursuing economics as a career. Because again, put my family first, put my happiness and the things that mattered to me first. So I sort of forewent the idea of an, an economics career and became an accountant, seemed like the next best thing I was I was actually very good at economics so a career might have beckoned but not up here only if we'd stayed in London Um, so I became an accountant almost by accident because it was the the least worst option in a sense I have loved being an accountant and I'm really actually chuffed that um, my son is training as an accountant and both my daughters are either married to or in long-term relationships with accountants. So to me, that's my wife, Carol, is also an, an accountant. So I, I kind of accidentally fell into this great profession. Uh, I trained with one of the large accounting firms, KPMG, moved into industry, Kodak, as we were talking about before. So by the time Laura was born, the only thing I knew about was accountancy, except that if I'm going to set up my small accountancy business, the kind of accountancy that I'm going to do is so fundamentally different from what I did at Kodak, you know, multi-billion pound business, or the kind of accountancy that I did, which is mostly auditing at KPMG, 
that I actually had to start from scratch. Notionally, I was a qualified accountant. Well, I was you know, technically a qualified accountant, but in truth, I had none of the skills that I actually needed to run a small accounting business. And I think that's often the way, you know, we step out of, you know, a, a one setting where we've been an employee, a small cog in a large organization, and suddenly we discover that we actually don't know enough. We might be really good technically in the areas that we focused on in the past in whatever that specialization is, in my case, largely auditing. But you know, I didn't know anywhere near enough about running a successful accounting firm or the kind of advice the clients would need. So I had to completely retrain and reskill myself. And uh, that and that was a process I loved. You know, I loved going on courses, I loved reading books, ended up writing quite a few books. Um, partly to share what I've learned and mostly just because it makes me happy again follow your heart do what you love it won't feel like work and over the you know written seven or eight books now over the last um, 15 years or so so I sort of fell into accountancy discovered that in order to make a build a business I was going to have to relearn everything and my learning mostly focused on sales and marketing because that's the area that as an accountant I've had no training professionally no input you know, from KPMG or Kodak, I was in this box accounting. But if you're running a business, whatever your technical box is, you know, computer software programming or, you know, whatever consulting training, you've actually got to go way beyond that box in terms of learning this, all of the components, but particularly the sales and marketing components. So, um, and I didn't, I didn't go the sort of formal MBA, let's study at university kind of route. I'd done that with two degrees already around economics. I went the much, much more practical route. I tracked down the sort of sales and marketing gurus. Now, at the time in the UK and still to this day, one of the most knowledgeable, one of the most insightful uh, experts out there is Peter Thompson. And so I went, I got involved with lots of Peter's stuff and became a personal friend and I learned huge amounts from him. Listen to Nightingale Conan audio tapes, which obviously now probably be digital files on a <laughs> podcast somewhere, wouldn't they? But I, but I, I absorbed knowledge and I read stuff. And extraordinarily, in the early stages of my business, I started to pull together a, a little document which ended up being twenty-five. wasn't even word a word file. It was an old word perfect DOS based thing. But if we ignore the file format, it was a twenty-five page A4 document called. 100 ways to maximize your profits. I just thought, well, account. everybody thinks that an accountant helps you run your business more successfully and make it bigger and better. Actually, in truth, that's not what most accountants do. It's what they should do, but it isn't what they actually mostly do. So we could talk later about you know, how to find a great accountant that does that kind of stuff. But you know, I wasn't trained to help my clients grow because that wasn't part of the auditing financial compliance kind of role that we were trained for. So I had to retrain myself in that stuff. And as I learned, as I went on courses, read books, I was paraphrasing some of the things that I came across. I was putting them in my own spin on them and so on. And I wrote them down. And this was a 25-page bullet pointy kind of document called 25 Ways to Maximize Your Profits. Sorry, 100 Ways to Maximize Your Profits. And I would, I got masses of press coverage as a tiny business. Um, back then, it was much easier, and there were a lot more local and regional newspapers than there are today. Bear in mind, this is 28 years ago. Um, I got lots of press coverage um, because I was willing to give away this this guide, and basically, I would take the guide and physically put it in someone's hand because that way, I'm physically meeting them, and a meeting was the first step in the sales funnel. Um, so the more meetings I could generate, rather, and I didn't want to pay for advertising, that didn't tend to work anyway. So you know, I got press coverage where you know local 
local accountant has written a, a book. I called it. It wasn't a book. It was 25 pages of Word file, um, you know, containing the keys to 100 ways to make your business more profitable. Any business owner that would like a copy can get one by emailing him on this address. I got, I got, I just grew my business primarily through that process. So then I thought, well, I've got this 25 word. 25 page document i'll send it to a publisher and just see whether they're interested and i was unbelievably lucky just about 20 years ago i sent it to one publisher coven page and they had i didn't realize but a series of books called 101 ways to negotiate 101 ways to to i don't know 101 ways to motivate your team there were 101 ways series around business issues but they didn't have 101 ways to make more profits or anything equivalent. So they wrote back to me and said, well, if you can take your 100 ways and turn it into 101, <laughs> we'll, we'll commission you. And so, in fact, I'd sent them about 10,000 words and they wanted 60,000 words. So whilst it was one more way, it was 50,000 more words. But So I wrote that over the, the, the next couple of months, one little uh, chapter at a time, it was published by Kogan Page. And they even published it the, the, the front cover design, I've got a copy. I'm going to reach out and church it. Um, <laughs> the front cover design of the first edition, this one, which was the blue and green, that was exactly the colours that my business letterhead was in. Now, I don't know whether that was deliberate or accidental, but for me it was manna from heaven because basically my my business was being promoted on bookstalls and airports and, and you know airport bookstalls around the world. And so that then started to generate lots of additional... Uh, leads for us so it was about it was about learning continuously recognizing that as a new small business I didn't know anywhere near enough despite the fact that I had two degrees and was a fully qualified chartered accountant who worked for some of the best businesses in the world I knew nowhere near enough I think that's a really key key learning point which is always like always be learning because you can never know enough and especially what you said is really focus that learning around sales and marketing because if you have your own business if you don't have sales and you can't draw in new leads you don't have a business and you can't keep it going so it's all around sort of focusing your efforts um on those two key areas and just learning as much as possible to make sure that you can keep making it happen and building that through and I want to ask you a question because there's a lot of people that come to me and uh, you know there's a lot of people in the industry that are afraid of um, giving their their sort of valuable information or their knowledge or their insights away for free Um, you know sort of some people that that are worried that their competition is going to find out what they're doing other people that are worried that uh, they're giving away too much for free and that people won't then want to work with them I want to just kind of get your insights um, around that in terms of the the value that you've got as a result of giving away you know these things for free uh, given uh, there there are different points of view i fully accept that you know one of my uh, one of my mentors and heroes paul dunn i know you've interviewed paul before and you know paul well you know, paul is firmly of the opinion that people don't value what they get for free and many many other people you know say that you shouldn't use free you shouldn't give away stuff for free however my experience of building a multiple businesses over the last 30 years here in the UK um, has been that it has been the underpinning, it's been the driving force, it's been the key success factor in everything I have done. Um, you know, Whether it was my initial 25-page uh, Word file that I got all that press coverage for, then it was the book, so I would give away the book for free. Of course, I would flip and give it away for free because it, I'd give it away at a meeting, you know, there are there are telesales people out there that would charge accountants a hundred pounds to line up a meeting. All it cost me was a bit of 
free press coverage and then the five pounds to buy my book to give them to give it to them. So I then I then when I built the the the, the business that, that really took off was called AVN. It's it was a training consulting software business specifically aimed at accountants. We only sold to fellow accountants, accountants in public practice here in the UK. And we created a raft of tools and resources, step-by-step systems to help them serve their clients better, consulting processes, ready to run uh, business club seminars, and the list went on and on and on, but also to run their businesses better around serving their clients better, and also to do those things in a way which made them more money. Because at the time, research was showing that most accountants didn't earn anywhere near enough. Despite what people think, most accountants weren't any weren't earning anywhere near enough, which meant they were having to work too damn hard, which meant they didn't have enough time to actually really give the proactive leave no stone unturned service. So so my core business was helping accountants break out of that track. And we grew to about 500 firms of accountants who paid a monthly subscription. You know, at its peak, they were paying us around about um, six or seven hundred pounds a month so eight or nine thousand pounds a year we had many of them and then there were ancillary things around that as well it was a very successful business um which i eventually sold to the management team and they still run it now um i, I delivered a webinar to the avn you work with shane yeah absolutely so yeah. that that avn community now under different ownership as it were but you know shane was actually one of shane was the software he was our IT director back in those early days. He created the first few bits of software and he's moved through and become MD and and and, and driving force and, and guru. In fact, he's written the most extraordinary book very recently called Putting Excellence into Practice. So there's another there's another example of someone who's completely transformed and added to their skill set. You know, IT Just director to... back then and, and globally published author and, and guru now taking the business to another level. Just to go back to, to Shane, so... Um, so I, I know Shane again. I think I met him through B1G1, which yeah. is just, I, you know, you've heard me talk about uh, B1G1 on this podcast uh, before. I cannot um, sort of praise the community and what it is that the B1G1 um, uh, sort of movement is uh, creating. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but yeah, so I met Shane there and you said that Shane originally started um, sort of developing software and he now runs the business, you know. How long did he work for the company and, um, you know, what was your role in sort of mentoring him or developing him to the point where he could take over the company and you'd be happy with that? I can answer some of that question and some of that will look good on me and some of it less less good. Uh, Shane, Shane was, I, I started AVN on my own um, when, after I sold my little accounting, my little accounting business was down south in Welling Garden City. When our twins were born, they're now 25 years ago, we had to move up here to Yorkshire because we needed to be close to parental support. Carol's mum and dad live here. So I sold my accounting business. And for the second time, I actually had no business. I had no visible means of support. But at that point, when we moved here, what I set up was what effectively became AVN. So that was almost now almost 25 years ago. And, and about three or four years into its existence, I merged with one of the firms of accountants. I was a 51% shareholder. He was a 49. And Shane came into the team then. So over 20 years, Shane's been involved. Back then, he was an IT man. And over that 20-year process, he has grown and developed. He's been the MD, I now, I think, for about 10 years. Because I never, and here's an interesting insight. Well, I think it's interesting. 
I, uh, I, I learned an enormous amount of stuff. I ended up being reasonably good going on stage. In fact, the whole growth model of the business was I would stand on stage, run events, which would hopefully capture the audience's attention. At the end of them, they want to become customers. That was the process. The events were free. So go back to, do I give away stuff for free? Yes, absolutely. I share a day's worth, sometimes three days worth of completely free content. But if it's really good content, they will want more and they will want help in implementing it. And so, yes, that has always been, whether it's free books, free reports, free training, free webinars, those have always been the driving force. So I, I became quite good at creating the solutions, the systems that accountants would use, the, you know, the marketing tools, the consulting processes, the ready-to-run seminars. I became quite good at standing on stage and telling the story around that, sharing value around that, bringing customers in, the sales and marketing stuff. But I have never been any good whatsoever at running a business. And there's a distinction between being the visionary, as it were, who sets out the path that you're going to, you're going to go down, that, that creates the technical stuff, which I don't mean computer technical stuff, I didn't do that, but the, the stuff that could be written in Word files, in systems, in checklists, in, in letters, in PowerPoint presentations, I created most of that in the early days. And I was good at that. I was good at, as well, the team told me I was good at inspiring them to do a better job. But what I did was I surrounded myself with great people, great people who stepped up to do the work. You know, I would, I would do the fun stuff, you know, go back to do what you love and it won't feel like work. I would do the things which I love doing and I was good at. I was good at reading, creating, writing, and standing up and talking about it. And so that's the only role I had in the business. And then I surrounded myself with people who wanted to do everything else. When you've got a business that grew to 40 people in there, there's a lot of other stuff that needs doing. But bear in mind, I never had a key to the front door. I never had a, a, an office there. I didn't want to be involved in the day-to-day -day running. I wanted to build a business that was based on systems and a really clear vision of where it was going, where the team were inspired and enabled and um, liberated to make stuff happen. Um, and the brilliant thing about that from my point of view is not only was the 20-year journey one where I enjoyed every single day because I was not bogged down in the stuff I didn't enjoy, but when I said to the team, um, you know, I would I actually had a uh, a three-month sabbatical just before my 50th birthday over the Christ over the winter period. Didn't go on holiday, just wanted to find out what not working felt like because I'd always stood on stage in the early days and said, I'm going to retire at 50. I'm building this business in a way that I can sell it and retire at 50. My team reminded me of that and said, so what's going to happen just before my 50th birthday? So I took a, a three-month sabbatical to see what not working was like to find out whether I could actually cope with retiring. And what I discovered was there were things that I liked about um, not having a workload, but I also realized it would do my head in. So I went back to the management team and said, look, this is what I would really love. I would love you guys to buy 40.1 of my 50.1 shares in the business for this amount of money, big amount of money. I would like to change my job title from at that point. She can't remember what my job title was. I was, a, I was technically a director of a limited company. Um, so I, I don't want to be a director anymore. I'm going to resign as a director. I'm going to, my job titles and become um, founder and head of research. All I'm going to spend my time doing is reading, re researching, so reading and doing original research, writing and standing up and talking about it. I want to work, um, was it two days a week for 40 weeks a year? So there's an 80-day-a-year arrangement. I want this amount of money for 80 days a year. If you make me work a single day more than 80 days, there's a really penal overtime arrangement in place. 
because if you're not careful, part-time salary just becomes, well, part-time salary, full-time job. That's the worst of all worlds, really. And I'd like this to happen by my 50th birthday, I said. There was no negotiation. This wasn't me holding a gun to the head, by the way. They, they knew the business well enough. They loved it. They just said, yeah, that sounds great. So by my 50th birthday, all of those things happened. They effectively bought me out. I had a small residual shareholding, which I've subsequently given to Shane, um, in my 10, the residual 10%. But, you know, I was, uh, from 50 onwards, was able to you know, make a whole different set of choices. Now, if you travel forward to 58, you know, I think, Charlie, I made a decision a year and a half ago that I was actually going to try and, so in the intervening time, I've written and I've spoken and I've got paid for those things. But I've now decided that I don't want to get paid for anything. I'm actually retired in the sense that I don't earn any money. I'm not retired in the sense that I don't sit at my desk reading and researching and doing stuff for four days a week. I love learning and I love sharing and I love bringing value. But where my focus now on, and we come back to that theme, my focus now is helping any business anywhere in the world use its business as a force for good. And so B1G1 is, is a passion of mine. And I give all of my time and all of my intellectual property, my books and so on, away for free in order to make it easier for businesses to come on that journey to making the world a better place to become uh, a force for good. So actually, one of the books that I wrote a couple of years ago with Shane, which is, this is an old edition, I, don't have, I can't find my fifth, the current edition, but it's actually, it, it, it's a book which I'd love to give to anybody who's listening to this podcast and would like to grow their business, maybe to do some of the things that that we've been talking about. You're welcome to have a copy of this. We'll put a link, no doubt, underneath where. I was going to say, yeah, I will um, put the link in the show notes, which are on my website, uh, so charliewyman.com forward slash podcast. So you can get all the show notes there and the links. Um, but for anybody tuning in that's not uh, listened to um, an episode before, B1G1 stands for buy one, give one. You can go to the you know, sort of b1g1.com website to find out more. Uh, you know, you can check, connect with um, Steve on LinkedIn. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Find out a lot more information um, about the organization or listen to some earlier podcasts, um, especially the one with Paul Dunn, who's uh, one of the founders of B1G1, incredibly inspirational um, human being. So, I, you know, I think both Steve and I encourage you to learn more about B1G1 because oh, it's, it's incredible. Do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it will actually change the way you view your business forever. I think certainly has me yeah and I think we talk a lot about you know using business as a force for good because you know we can't rely on governments we can't rely on other people to be able to make a positive impact in the world and change things you know but we as business owners can you know we can do that ourselves we've just got to find you know the ways that we can do it um and you know you talk a lot about uh, putting yourself out there because i uh, that's a lot of what i do and and work with clients is i help them become more visible and more influ- influential because as a result you um you win more leads you win more business and you can grow much more sustainably without having to then spend a fortune on marketing uh, start you know getting really frustrated with advertising and other such things so just want to talk a little bit more um, about the fact that, you know, you very much put yourself out there and you focused on what you were good at and let other people focus on the things that you, you know, you didn't like or weren't so good at mm. yeah. so that you can keep that that momentum building and keep the business growing. Can you talk a little bit more about that or any advice that you can give to um, either a, a startup or a small business that wants to put themselves out there but not quite made that leap yet? My, I mean, bear in mind that I've just 
said that the two things that have driven the success in our business have been me writing stuff in early days, 25 pages of Word file, and that which turned into a book, and then me standing on stage um, using seminars and uh, webinars as the, as the top part of the sales funnel. The extraordinary thing about both of those things, writing and speaking, is if you went back and asked my school teachers, and in fact, if you went back and asked, um, you know, even to this day, to a large extent, my family members, would Stephen, they call me Stephen, by the way, but I like to be called Steve, um, you know, would, would Stephen stand on stage in front of five people? They say categorically not. He's way too embarrassed, way too shy, way too timid for that. And I absolutely am. If we go out for a, for a meal, Charlie, if Karen and I go out for a meal, and you know the, the food's horrible, and the waiter comes around and says, "What do you? Th- is it? Is everything okay?" I'll say, "Oh yeah, it's it's good, thank you." I do not ever want to make a fuss. I never want to put my head above the parapet. I I, I feel uncomfortable and embarrassed in this situation. So, how come I'll stand on stage in front of a thousand people? I and to some extent, I surprise myself, but I think everybody's got that in them. It should, and everybody will be surprised by the fact they can do it. What I found was that as long as I'm talking about something that I know more than the audience. And by definition, I always do. I'll either be talking about, in this case, you know, we're talking about my story, so no one else knows my story and my insights and my thoughts better than me. Therefore, I can't be wrong. If I stand on stage in one of uh, one of my you know, the events where I was showcasing the stuff that ABN had created that people were invited to buy from us at the end of the event, no one knew that stuff better than me because I'd, ma- I'd created, I'd invented, I'd made up and imagined most of it. So as long as I felt that I was, I had more knowledge than my audience, self-confidence grew. Now, the first time I stood on stage, I was terrified. But what I discovered is you don't die. People are interested and you get a real buzz at the end of it. So the second time was a bit easier, despite the fact that, you know, I'm this shy, retiring, you know, really won't say boo to a goose kind of person and still am to this day. You set me off, as you have done, and as you see, I just don't stop. And it's the same on stage. So what I've discovered is that no matter how much you don't think you could speak in public, in my case, then actually you find with a little bit, you take the first step, which is hard, but the second step is so much easier. The third, fourth, and fifth are just a complete joy. And then when it starts kicking in that, hey, wait a minute, people are saying nice things, they're giving good feedback, and they're buying then you want to do more and more and more of it. And it was the same with writing. You know, at school, I, w- I was a good student in every subject other than English. And I got, I got A's in every subject apart from English. It just wasn't the thing that any of my teachers would have ever imagined that I'd have written one book, let alone you know, seven or eight of them. Um, and, and so what I found in both those cases, the things which I thought would be impossible for me, writing professionally, speaking professionally, using those things as the basis to build a business and basically change my life, I would have assumed they were impossible, but they absolutely categorically have proved not to be. They proved to be much easier than um, I I dared to imagine, and they have proved to be at the root of the little success that I've had. So it's, I would just, it's about tackling those things that you think you can't do, you know, and going, putting yourself in the public sphere. These days, it's mostly about, I'm guessing, you know, social media, video blogs and writing stuff. It's perhaps not in the same way that it was back then, but it's still putting your head above the parapet, going public in, in, in Daniel Priestley and dense terms, sort of turning yourself into a key person of influence. I'm, I'm, I've read the books now and I think they're great. And effectively what he's talking about is I've done my version of that over the years and kind of became a 
a key person of influence between in the in the accounting space without knowing that's what I was doing. But it, the same sort of thing. It is so much easier. No matter how many hangups you've got, it's so much easier than you dare to imagine. Trust me. And it's a much. Um... Mumbling again, Uh, but it's a much more valuable uh, use of your time when it comes to marketing as well, because the return on your investment in time in putting yourself out there, becoming more visible, um, is significantly greater than any amount of uh, you know advertising spend or sort of other forms of marketing. And you know, sort of like my background, especially, is around uh, you know sort of running events and webinars and seminars and things like that as well, because. Um, again, in my experience, it's it just yields so much greater benefit. Yes, the time aspect of it is much greater. But as you just said, you know, focus on doing the things that you're great at and then outsource or get other people to focus on the things that you don't have to do. Yeah. that will then allow you to like invest more time doing that. And, um, you know, you mentioned as well that you are one of the, mo- the world's most trusted accountants due to the fact that you have over 500 um, testimonials on LinkedIn. So 500 or over 500 uh, LinkedIn recommendations, which is incredible. So, you know, I obviously uh, teach a lot about how to leverage LinkedIn to grow your business. And uh, one of the things that I preach about all the time is make sure that you have current recommendations. So what is, you know, what's your secret to success? How did you get over 500 people to actively go onto LinkedIn and give you a recommendation? Yeah, well, because these are, these are of course, recommendations, not just, um, you know, endorsements. You know, it's easy to endorse, isn't it? Click the endorsement. Mm. But recommendations where someone actually taken the trouble to write a sentence or a paragraph or sometimes, you know, war and peace about you and post it on on, on LinkedIn. And, so, and the, the trail is there visibly of who said it and when they said it and what the relationship was at the time. And I have something like 520 of those. It's embarrassingly simple. It's embarrassingly straightforward. Um, but I am really proud of the fact that I have those 500 recommendations because the key is is twofold. Number one, do things that people really value. So through my seminars and books and webinars and one-to-one consulting sessions, time and time and time again, people said, that was great. Thank you very much. Really found that useful. That's really making a difference. You've helped us grow and succeed or whatever. So when you do stuff that people find really valuable, what I then just created was a systematic way of when they said that was great, systematic saying, I'm really pleased it was great, really pleased it was valuable. Um, would you do something small in return for me? Would you Would you essentially say what you've just said on LinkedIn? And here's a link so you could do it. So I would create a standard three or four sentence, three or four short paragraph email. In fact, it's, it probably still sits on my, I haven't done it for a little while because once I got to sort of 500, I wasn't that keen to play the getting it any more numbers but I, I i systematically whenever someone said thank you essentially i would say would you be willing to go on uh, linkedin and just say essentially what you've just said there and i found that about 70 percent of people did and because i had a standard way of phrasing that request which was usually in an email so i would send them an, it was usually via an email exchange after a meeting or a seminar or they've downloaded a book or bought something or whatever so we'd usually have a thank you exchange of they'd say thank you or that was great or whatever. And I would go back to them and so pleased it was great. Um, uh, it would be really helpful to me so that oh, it would help. Up, I probably phrased it like this from memory. It'd be really helpful to other people so they can see the value in this themselves. If you could say what you just said on LinkedIn, would you be willing to do that? And here's a link so that you can. And so really, the, the key was twofold. Number one, do lots of good things. 
we all, we're all trying to do that in our businesses, aren't we? Serve your customers well. And when you do serve them well, systematically ask them to say something about it on LinkedIn. That's absolutely a brilliant piece of advice and one that I will be sharing with my community uh, outside of this podcast as well. (laughs) And and, and at one point, and and you were, I don't know whether you were using LinkedIn, but about eight or nine years ago, LinkedIn had a facility and it doesn't anymore. They disabled it um, where you could, in the the search facility, you could search for accountants, let's say, you could search for any keyword. So I could search for accountants and then you could sort them according to the number of recommendations. It yeah, you can't do, do that, that anymore, anymore, which is no. really, really annoying. It's really annoying because what, why, why that's really annoying to me is because I was at the top of that list. <laughs> In the world, no one else had more recommendations as an accountant than me. Um, so I screenshotted that back then when, when the functionality was still there. And so my CV and my, my introductory biography says, you know, according to LinkedIn, the world's most highly recommended accountant because until someone can show me there's that there's another accountant that's got more than the 520 or so that I have, because back then when we could test that systematically and easy at the push of the button, it was definitely true. Can't do it, test it so easily now. The only way is actually looking one by one through the millions of accountants. But you know, it's a great it's a great part of my personal brand. You know, at least at one point I was the world's most recommended accountant. By the way, that does not mean I'm any good. Technically, I am the world's worst accountant. I'm completely <laughs> and absolutely hopeless at accounting, which doesn't matter in the slightest because I don't sell accounting services. I historically used to sell to accountants ideas for making their and systems and solutions for making their businesses better and serve their clients better, but they weren't technical accounting solutions. And I don't even do that anymore. I now just help businesses build kindness and doing good into their business models. So they're a force for good in a way that makes their businesses more successful as well as making the world a better place. That's a really key lesson there in what you just said, because um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a big difference between what people perceive to be true and the reality of it. So, you know, if you see or hear something, you know, in, in itself, Steve's the most, you know, sort of recommended accountant out there, but does not actually do accounting services for clients, um, you know, do a little bit of your homework. And that's another reason why I love LinkedIn, because you can actually go onto somebody's profile and really understand what it is that they offer. And the more optimized and the more uh, sort of present their profile is, the easier it will be to understand what somebody does, who they do it for, and really what value that they're going to offer. Mm. Um, there are so many people out there selling services, selling things, um, and don't necessarily have the experience to back it up. So use LinkedIn to get that extra credibility and to understand who is doing what. Um, yeah. Because yeah, perception and uh, reality are two, two quite different things, especially mm. um, on the internet today. Yeah. Well, LinkedIn is is for accountants and and for many other people in business, probably the closest we have to TripAdvisor in the sense that, you know, we just come back from Miami last week. And when we were around Miami, we chose the restaurants based on TripAdvisor ratings because it gives, it's not perfect, but it gives you a really good sense of which place other people seem to really like and which place they don't like as much. Um, And you know, in the same way as part of the due diligence in that anybody should do when choosing professionals or advisors or consultants or suppliers probably but certainly where it's a people-based service is to look at their LinkedIn profile because if 
if you're faced with, let's give you an example, you're faced with a choice of two accountants. You've narrowed down your list and you find two accountants. And one of them has, let's say, 150 recommendations on LinkedIn, and one of them has none. What can you conclude? Well, you can't conclude for a fact that the one with no recommendations is no good. I mean, he just might not be, he or she might not be using LinkedIn in the in that in, in the right kind of way, might not have asked people, might just might have the right kind of customer base. But it's telling you something, I think, whereas, and what's definitely, to get 150 recommendations, that other accountant has to have done a lot of good things to pe- for people because they you can't get named identifiable people to get, put their head above the parapet and say, this mm-hmm. accountant is great, unless actually he has done something really good. A handful of recommendations, well, you can get those from friends, you can get them from team members, you can you can sort of play the game a little bit, but you can't get hundreds and hundreds by playing the game. The only way you can get a lot of recommendations is actually by doing a lot of good work. Uh, and if and the accountant or the supplier, the person who doesn't have a lot of recommendations still may be great, but we don't yet have evidence of that. Whereas the supplier who does have a lot of recommendations probably is great because there's a lot of evidence suggesting that's the case. So I love TripAdvisor when we go on holiday, and I think I think accountants and pr- professionals, and indeed pretty much everybody else in business, if they're selling themselves, then their their LinkedIn profile, if they're claiming to be a guru or an expert, their LinkedIn profile has actually got to support that claim mm. rather than undermine it. Yeah, and social proof is one of the biggest drivers of business yeah, yeah, today. Yeah. So you know, sure. your LinkedIn yeah, Robert recommendations. Robert told us that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and another form yeah. of social proof. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And, uh, you know, for our listeners, for your benefit, that this podcast is available as an audio podcast. So you can listen to it on any of the sort of major podcasting platforms. And I also host the video interviews on YouTube. You can also find them at my website, charliewyman.com. So there's lots of different ways that you can consume this information. And each of the podcast episodes gives you a different insight and a different perspective from somebody else that is, you know, in business, is growing a business, that has exited a business with the purpose of ensuring inspiring and empowering you to do more. So um, at at this point, I'm going to say thank you so much, Steve, for uh, sharing all of your wisdom, all of your insights. And, you know, I hope that for our listeners have have gained a huge amount from this podcast. Um, We are going to have a look at creating an impact assessment. So this will be for video video watchers only. Um, If you are listening on audio, then just come back to my website or come back to YouTube and everything will be on my website anyway. So thank you so much for listening. I will speak to you again soon. When you're working on exciting projects in tech or trying to change the world, it's hard to focus on marketing and it might not seem like a big priority for you right now. Talking about what you're working on and the driving force behind why you're doing it will help you raise your profile in your industry and keep your audience up to date and interested. My goal for this podcast is to share the amazing things that businesses and individuals are working on that will shape the world of tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform and share it with the others that you think would benefit. If you liked it loads, then feel free to leave me a review. All the show notes and any links mentioned in today's episode will be available on my website. That's charliewyman.com forward slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Ciao for now. Bye.